this morning we're in the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 2 of Philippians. So if you've got a Bible, if you've got an app and you want to turn there, uh, go right ahead. And uh, we're going to start off just right away reading from chapter 2 of Philippians, starting in verse 12. So I'll read. You can read along either in your Bible, in your app, or on the screen. And uh, follow with me here. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, Paul writes, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let me pray, and then we'll start unpacking this passage together this morning. Father, thank you for Jesus, and uh, thank you for uh, his giving of his life, his sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you that uh, he, though being God, as we saw last week, didn't count equality with you a thing to be grasped or a thing to be exploited while he lived this life as a man on earth, but instead relied totally on your spirit and instead uh, was obedient and uh, fully so that he can sympathize with us in our weakness and know uh, what we go through and the struggle we have in life and be our perfect sacrifice on the cross. Father, thank you too then that we have the opportunity because of Jesus' work on the cross, not because of our work, but all because of his, to now live out the salvation that's been given to us, to, to work it out, to work it through in our life. Uh, give me grace today, Holy Spirit, to be able to explain this uh, in a way that is true and in a way that's helpful. I pray also uh, that, as, that as I speak, uh, your words would flow through me that you teach me even as I teach. And I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would take your word and twist it. And this verse especially, he would, he would cause uh, insecurity and doubt in us that, that we need to do more to earn your favor, but it's simply not true. Jesus has done it all. Thank you that you forgive me in Jesus. And uh, I pray now that uh, you teach us, Father. We pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So Paul begins, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. Isn't this written by the same guy who wrote Ephesians chapter 2? Do you know Ephesians chapter 2? Not Philippians 2, but Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but the gift of God so that no one can boast. Didn't the same guy write that who wrote this? And now what's he talking about? Now he's saying, work out your salvation? I thought it was a free gift. I thought Jesus had done all of it. What do you mean I got to work it out? 
I mean, this is the same guy in Romans 4. He, he said, Paul said, to the one who does not work, but simply trusts him, simply trusts Jesus who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He says it's not by works, it's by faith. From the cross, Jesus cried out. He said, it's, it's what? It is finished. It is finished. What's that mean? Who can add to his work? Nobody. So, okay, did, did Paul just like get wacky on his theology for a verse here or something? Did he, did he have a typo? Did autocorrect mess up what he was trying to say? Like, like what, what happened here that he writes, work out your salvation? Because clearly salvation is a free gift of God. It's, it's something that he gives to us and it's something that he does. And it's something we simply receive as a gift through repentance and faith. The Bible's clear about that. So I don't know about you, but I remember the first time after I became a Christian, I read this verse and I had somebody teach it even a little wrongly that if I didn't do enough good things and work it out good enough, (laughs) boy, I don't know if you're going to make it, Josh. Except that's not what we're going to see this morning. That's not what Paul's saying. It's simply not what he's saying. Salvation, what, what Paul's telling us here is, He's telling us to to work out our salvation, to work it through. So he's talking about salvation. So let me just take a second to explain theologically these three major parts of salvation. And we'll talk about it maybe in terms of three acts of salvation, like three acts of a play. Okay? The first act is this. The first act, act number one in salvation and how God accomplishes our salvation, number one is justification. You're going to get a lot of shuns today. Not like you know, you're being shunned, but like T-I-O-N. Justification, okay? Justification. What is justification? Justification is when I'm justified before God. I'm made right before God. And my justification was accomplished solely and completely by Jesus Christ on the cross nearly or just over 2,000 years ago. When he... Uh, lived a perfect life, did not sin, yet he paid the penalty for sin on the cross for me. He justified me. That was accomplished in the past by Jesus Christ, totally by Jesus. I had nothing to do with it. It was before I was even born for that matter. Justification. You know, an easy way to remember what justification is, is when God looks at me now, he looks at me positionally, I'm justified, and it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's how he sees me. He gives me his righteousness. He he clothes me in Christ. He veils me in Christ's righteousness. I'm now a saint. And the way God sees me is no longer as a sinner, but as a saint. And it's just as if I'd never sinned. I'm justified. That's act number one. Act number two of salvation is sanctification. Sanctification. Well, what's sanctification? Well, sanctification, after I'm justified, after Jesus has uh, been the propitiation for my sin and he's, he's, uh, he's redeemed me, he's paid the full penalty for my sin, he's endured God's wrath for me. Now, after I trust him in repentant faith, I'm called to live like him. And sanctification is this process where over time, more and more, I become more and more like Jesus. So uh, I, I was saved when I was in high school. Uh, 20 years ago now, 
I've been, for 20 years, I've been a Christian. And if you would look at my life in high school to my life in college, to my life, fast forward 20 years now, God's sanctification in me, by God's grace, I hope, I'm pretty sure, I'm growing and I'm a better man today than I was when I was 14, 15 years old. How about you? From the time uh, you became a Christian and trusted Christ, whether that's 20 years or 20 days, are you growing in your faith? Are you being sanctified? Are you being made more like Jesus? Not that you never sin, but when you do, you quickly, it's not as big of a detour, and you quickly get back on following Jesus. And you're being sanctified. You're being cleaned. You're, being cle- you're, you're becoming pure. You're becoming like Jesus. That's in the present. That's right now. That's sanctification. Day by day, we become more like Christ until we finally, at the end, are glorified. And that brings us to act number three of salvation. The third act, the third part, is in the future. And it's glorification. Glorification. Where I no more am sinful. I I no longer sin. I I, I no longer uh, have weakness or sickness or disease or an attitude. But I'm glorified. And what what glorification ultimately is, is it's God restoring things to the way they originally were back in Genesis before the fall. Remember the early part of Genesis, chapter 1 and 2? Adam and Eve were created and they were in God's image and they were had perfect relationship with one another, no fights. They had perfect relationship with God. There was no distance. And then they sinned and messed it all up. And that harmony they had was destroyed. Well, when we get to glorification, what's happening there is is Jesus, by his work on the cross, is correcting what happened and sanctifying us to where we're eventually one day by him glorified. And he returns us basically back to that paradise where there's harmony and perfect peace with God. That's what glorification is. It's being made like Jesus. And so when you think about these three acts, there's a real sense in which our salvation... Is past justification, present sanctification, and future glorification. Past, present, future. You might write those down next to those three acts. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin in our lives. And we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And what Paul's writing about here is how we live in the present stage of that, sancti- of that salvation, our sanctification. He's talking about act number two. And what he's saying is this, that in act two, you should be all about working out your salvation. In act two, you should be all about working out your salvation. Lost some notes, so you just have to bear with me. Notice what he says. Read, read chapter or uh, verse twelve again. He says, "He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." Notice what Paul doesn't say. What doesn't he say? Well, one, he doesn't say. He doesn't say work for your salvation. That's the lie of every false and every other religion in the world. 
is that you work for your salvation, that you earn your salvation before God, that you do something to achieve your identity in Christ, that if I do enough good, God will love me. If, I, if at the end of my life, the good outweighs the bad, I'll be saved. Well, number one, that's never gonna happen because we're sinful and we're more wicked than we could ever imagine. And two, it's simply a lie because one ounce of being sinful condemns us to hell for eternity. We cannot earn our salvation. In fact, the thing we earn isn't our salvation, but our damnation. That's what we earn because of our sin. We earn eternity in hell being punished for sin. So notice Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. Why not? Because that was salvation past. That was my justification. Jesus already did that for me. All of it, it's finished. I can't add to it. It's done. He also didn't say, work it up. Work up your salvation. Stir it up. Turn the crank. Get fired up. And get so turned up, turn the crank hard enough, and maybe God will show up, and he'll change you, and he'll do something really cool. Just, turn, just get your emotions whipped into a frenzy. He doesn't say work it up. He says work it out. He doesn't say just pursue some kind of emotional experience. He says, work it out. That's what he says. That means now that you're in a right relationship with God, make sure that you're living out the practical implications of being saved. Make sure that your new identity in Jesus is causing you to grow in a greater relationship with him. Now, some of us, we've grown up in churches where we were or cultures, or homes, or whatever else, where we've been taught, man, get it right or pay the price. Get with the program, figure it out, obey enough, get to church enough, give enough, don't swear enough, don't do this enough, get it right, and you'll be saved. Then, well, maybe, maybe you'll be saved. Because maybe if you do enough good things and you work it out enough, Maybe God will find favor with you. Chances are all of us in some way, shape, or form have experienced that type of an atmosphere or that type of an attitude towards us. And that's simply not what the Bible teaches. It's not. Now, does the Bible teach we should be holy? Yeah. It says, be holy for I am holy. Peter writes, quoting God's words to Moses. Be holy for I am holy. Separate yourself from sin. Grow in your sanctification to become more and more like Jesus. Do what's right. But here's the difference. Don't do it so that God might finally show you favor. Do it because back in in salvation past, in uh, justification, Jesus on the cross, he showed you favor. Do you see the difference? I'm not trying to earn God's favor. I... I know he's shown me favor, so I'm going to live the way I ought to live. I'm going to live from that identity. There's a huge difference. There's a huge difference in doing good works because I have to and doing good works because I want to. And when you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes, he indwells you, he changes you, and you start, we're going to see, to desire to do good things. Again, this is really similar to Ephesians chapter 2 now, isn't it? When Paul says, he says salvation 
is a gift of God. It's, it's by grace through faith so that nobody can boast. It's not by works. And a lot of times we read, you know, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, but we forget verse 10. And it's all the same thought. And in verse 10, Paul says this. Here's why God saved us and showed us grace and gave us salvation as a gift. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're created to do good works. You're created to honor Jesus Christ. And it's because of his work in the past that you can do it. Salvation is a free gift, but salvation means ongoing transformation. As we grasp more and more of what Jesus has done for us. See, good works isn't a condition for salvation. It's a consequence of salvation, right? In fact, I wrote a song about it to help you remember. You want to hear it? Come on, do you want to hear it? Okay, it goes like this. If you're saved and you know it, work it out. If you're saved and you know it, work it out. If you're saved, you will know it. Because your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, work it out. What do you think? Catchy, huh? Listen, it's so true though. If you've been saved, God changes you and your life begins to show it. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, just like you always obeyed, just like you always obeyed. And when you obeyed when I was there, you know, a lot of people, it's funny how many of you shape up when I walk into the room. But then Paul says, not only when I'm here, but also in my absence, work out your salvation. Work it out with fear and trembling, not because I'm afraid that it's not enough for God, but because I I tremble in fear when I realize what Jesus did for me on the cross. That he saved me. Well, one of the things that we'll say sometimes, I, I quote my pastor from while I was a student at Moody a lot, James McDonald. He says, if your faith hasn't saved you, it probably hasn't, or if your faith hasn't changed you, it probably hasn't saved you. In other words, if there isn't evidences of God's grace in your life after you trust Jesus, did you really trust him? Now, some of us hear that if you have a tender conscience and you, you revert back to that wrong way of thinking like, oh, I didn't do enough then for God to love me. And that's not what we're saying. We're saying because God loved you, because he saved you. In fact, if you fear that, that's probably good evidence of the fact that, that God's changing you and working in your heart. But he's changing you to be like his son. And, and he's the one doing the work, not us. In fact, I mean, Paul says it right away. Jesus did it for us. Look at verse 13. Right after this, he says, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the one who works in you. One commentator I read this week said it this way. God works in while you work out. Because God works in you, you can work it out. You can work out your salvation because God has worked it in you. God works in, so I work out. Well, what does he work out in me? Or excuse me, what does he work in me in terms of my sanctification? Well, number one, and this, re- this refers to, to our salvation to begin with as well. He says, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in us to give us the desire to, to, to be willing. God works in us, number one, to be willing. Do you realize that apart from God's grace working in our lives, there's no chance any of us would ever turn to him to begin with. We're so wicked. That if you've trusted Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit was working on your heart and working in your life before you made that decision to trust him. In fact, you know how I know this? There's a handful of verses I could quote, but here's a great one. Romans 5, and 5 verse 8. For while we were still sinners, while we were still God's enemies, Jesus died on the cross for me. And the Holy Spirit works in our heart in such a way that we work, or that, excuse me, we turn to trust him. We become willing to listen to the gospel. We become willing to respond to the gospel and surrender to the gospel. And we become willing then to live a life that's holy and honoring and worthy of the gospel. It's all because of God first working in me and in you. Second thing he does, not only does he work in us, but he makes my heart, working in my heart, he makes me willing to work. He makes me work. Not just willing, but he actually makes me work. The good things I do have nothing to do with me. Paul writes about this in his letter to the Corinthians as well. Has nothing to do with me, but everything to do with Jesus who works in me and empowers me. All of my good works, all of my good deeds, they don't, they don't point to me, they point to Jesus working in me. So God works in me while I work it out and it's flowing through me. It's him making me willing and then making me work and live it out. So if you're scared, how do I work it out? Well, simply trust Jesus, love him more, get to know his word more, get to know him more. And naturally the Holy Spirit will help you begin to work out your salvation. You'll live it out, you'll show it. You know, it's kind of like in, you ever have a math teacher who graded really hard simply I was pretty good at math. I enjoyed math, math and science, those sorts of classes. And I don't know if it was algebra, physics, what it was, but I just remember a handful of times there were tests and I could see the teacher's face and or homework assignments. And he wanted you to show your work. But what I did is I went, oh, this is a waste of time. This is the answer. And I circled it. And I did the next thing. I had all the answers right. But you know what I got? Not an A, I got like 70% right, even though every answer was right. Why? I didn't show my work. I didn't show my work. I didn't show how I... It's the same sort of thing. Paul says, work it out. Show your work. Work it through. Show it. Not to bring glory to you, but to show the grace of God to other people. That's what we'll see here in a moment. Well, Paul goes on. He starts to tell us how... We do this. Some tangible ways of how we work out our salvation. He starts in verse 14. He says, now do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now here's what I'm going to do for the rest of the time this morning. I'm going to take a little detour because I'm going to take a detour to the Old Testament. And then we're going to come back and wrap it up. Because what I think is happening here, in fact, I'm convinced of it. That the Holy Spirit, as Paul's writing these five, six verses, I, I believe the Holy Spirit brought to Paul's mind the story of Moses. 
Because think about this. You know, you know Paul, right? He's, he's in prison while he's writing this. He doesn't know if he's going to get out. He's mentioned that multiple times, and he mentions it even at the end of this passage that we're in today, that his, his life might end by having his life poured out as a sacrifice. And Paul, while he grew up, he grew up with some of the best training that, that, that you could get as a Jewish man, as a young man growing up in the faith. And he becomes a rabbi and some believe part of the Sanhedrin. And uh, you, you read about him and in Acts chapter 7 and 8, Stephen is stoned. And the end of chapter 7, Paul, it says they, st- they stoned Stephen for his uh, pro- proclamation of the gospel. And Towards the end of chapter chapter 7, in some verse in the 50s, but it says there was a young man there by the name of Saul that they gave their coats to. So they're stoning Stephen, and there's this young man, maybe a teenager, they hand their coats to him, and his name is Saul. Maybe he's in his early 20s, I don't know. But here's what happens then after that. You get to chapter 8, and the beginning of chapter 8 in, in the book of Acts says, and Saul approved of what had taken place, that he loved what had taken place, that, that Stephen had been stoned. Saul, that was Paul's name before he became a Christian. His name was Saul. And Saul was so zealous for the faith and so zealous for doing things uh, right and for God's glory that he, he honestly, from his, the heart of hearts, believed that Jesus was a false Messiah and he was causing all kinds of people to dishonor God And so he would go after them and persecute them. Well, then what happens in chapter 9 of the book of Acts is Saul, he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, and he has others with him, and he's he's likely walking on a horse, and a bright light appears, knocks him down on the ground, and all who are there hear this voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you find out it's Jesus. Saul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. In other words, by persecuting his body, the church, he's persecuting Jesus himself. And long story short, uh, Saul goes into the city. Jesus appears to another guy, Ananias, and Ananias cares for Saul. He becomes a Christian. He's baptized. He changes his name now to Paul. And he goes from being the biggest persecutor the church knew at the time to the, the great ambassador of the church who planted churches and wrote, a huge chunk of our New Testament. And it says there in Acts chapter 9 that God would show Paul how much he would have to suffer for the gospel. And we see Paul now suffering. And we see him writing to the Philippians towards the end of his life, uh, years if not a couple decades later. And while he's writing, I believe because of his Jewish background, he knew the Old Testament inside and out. I think he's thinking back, man, this might be my farewell address to this church. And I think he remembers Moses gave a farewell address to the people of Israel at the end of Deuteronomy. Stick with me here, okay? This will make sense. I'll bring it around here in a second. But if you get to the end of Deuteronomy, Moses shows up and, well, he didn't show up. I mean, he had been there, but he, he gives a farewell address to the people of Israel the last few chapters in the book of Deuteronomy. And, and he says a handful of things. In fact, if you have your Bible, maybe, maybe turn there with me to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 31, I believe. 
This is risky. I don't have it written down, so we're just going for it. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I'm 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord had said to me, you shall, go, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go out over before, will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispose of them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And it goes on and you get to, uh, you get later, it says in verse nine, then Moses wrote this law and he gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them. He said, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of the release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. And, and as you go on, you realize that Moses is leaving this record for them and, and he's addressing them so that this will be a witness against them of their disobedience. And when Paul is going here, he starts saying, if you flip back to Philippians now, Paul says in Philippians chapter four, or chapter 2, verse uh, 14, he, he says, after saying to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he says, do so without grumbling or dispute. Do so without grumbling or complaining. And then what, what he does right after that, in verse, thir- in verse 15, he says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Well, if you go back to Moses' final words, you know what he calls the people of Israel in chapter 32, verse 5? He says, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And there's a whole bunch of other parallels here that you start to see between what Paul's writing. And I believe some of these events of Moses' life are coming to his mind as he's writing these things. Because he says, don't grumble or dispute. Well, what do we know about Moses? Moses led God's people out of captivity in Egypt and they get into the wilderness. They're on the way to the promised land. And what do they start doing? But grumbling and disputing and complaining. Now it's fascinating when you look at it because there's a huge parallel between Moses and Paul. They're very much alike. And I'm guessing that Paul, he's a a smart guy. He's, He's not ignorant to the fact of how much God had used him. And I think he had to know in some sense that God was using him to lead people similar to the way that God had used Moses in the past. Moses was used, here's some parallels for you. Moses was used by God to lead his people to salvation from the oppressor Pharaoh. Paul is used by God to lead his people from the oppressor, ultimately Satan. Jesus met Moses in a desolate place via a bright light in a burning bush and said, Moses... You'll lead my people. Jesus met Paul. And why do I say it was Jesus that met him? Because if you read in in the book of Exodus, when the burning bush shows up in uh, Exodus chapter 3, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him. When you see angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, most of the time that's Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, before he had put on flesh. Angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Moses, follow me. I'm going to use you. Bright light appears to Paul. Where? 
in a desolate place and says, Paul, I've chosen you. You're going to lead my people. They're very similar. Uh, Moses was in that desolate place because for years he had, had hid after murdering one of God's people. Paul's in this desolate place on his way to murder God's people. Moses led people to a salvation that God had clearly accomplished. You know what it was? Remember how Moses leads the people out of the promised land and he parts the Red Sea, God does. And there were all the plagues and all the other things before that. And God does all these things. And we're going to read it here in a second. If you want to turn to Exodus chapter 14, you'll see how God clearly saved them. Well, Paul also led people to a salvation that Jesus clearly and solely accomplished. If you look back at the salvation Moses led people to in the book of Exodus, here's what you'll see. Actually, let's look at the end of chapter 14. Uh, Starting in verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians. If you read the first part of this chapter, you'd find out they get to the sea, they're being surrounded, the enemy's coming, certain defeat, what's going to happen? And God parts the Red Sea for them to escape. They get to the other side, Pharaoh's army's chasing after them, And here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Complete salvation, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their left hand and right hand. Thus the Lord saved Israel, verse 30, that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so they believed, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. It sounds like they recognized their salvation was totally accomplished by God. And that's the salvation Moses led. Well, Paul makes it very clear. Your salvation is accomplished totally and completely by Jesus, by God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. He does it all. And they're very similar. But Paul, knowing, I, I, and I know this is speculation, but I, I, I really, as I look at the text, I, I think this is the case. I think he's considering this and and Moses comes through and he's considering Moses' example and how he's leading people like Moses did and Moses led them to salvation and, and God has used Paul to lead the Gentiles to salvation in Jesus. And he remembers what happened right after Moses led them to salvation. Imagine you're one of the Israelites and you get led across the Red Sea and you see all your enemies die and get covered in the water behind you. And you fear the Lord and you're excited. How long do you think that would last? You'd, be, you'd think it forever, wouldn't you? You'd think, man, I, you can't believe what I saw God do. There's no doubt he's with me. There's no doubt he's in control. Yet look, verse chapter 15 of Exodus is a, is a big song about all of that. And uh, you get to the end of chapter 15. And starting in verse 22, after they sing this song, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. 
When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses. How long did it take for him to grumble after God had saved him? Three days. I think Paul has this in mind. He's saying, work out your salvation. See, the Israelites, they had a chance to work out their salvation. They're, they're led across the Red Sea. And if you read the rest of chapter 15 and into 16, you'll see God give them instruction for how they ought to live and fear him. And that as they fear him, he'll continue to bless them. And yet over and over, they grumble and complain and they choose a sinful attitude. And they choose then ultimately because of their sin to suffer. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. And that's what they do. Well, Paul knows that's a quick transition from, wow, Jesus saved me to, oh, I'm so disgruntled because Jesus didn't do this for me too. And so thinking of what happened with Moses, he goes, I hope that doesn't happen here. Let me remind you, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you to will and work for his good pleasure Do not complain in anything or dispute. I think he's recalling what had happened. And he's reminding them, don't be like the Israelites, who though they were saved completely and fully by God and had the opportunity to work out their salvation in the wilderness, didn't. But instead they chose to complain. And instead they chose to grumble. See, look at verse 14. Do all things then without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So Paul starts addressing here how we work out our salvation. We'll work through these really quickly. Number one, how do you work out your salvation? Well, remember the example of the Israelites, all right? Because I really believe that's in Paul's mind as he writes this. Number one, choose to rejoice, not not to grumble. You recognize it's a choice, don't you? You recognize it's a choice when you grumble. If you don't recognize it, you do. You seem to recognize it when your kids do. (laughs) When your kids grumble and complain, you tell them to shape up. Oh, come on. No, choose a right attitude. Figure it out. Well, that applies to us too, doesn't it? I choose not to grumble. When the people grumbled in the wilderness, ultimately their grumbling led them to 40 years more in the wilderness. It was God testing them, those situations, to see how they would respond, whether by faith or by doubt. So instead of choosing to grumble, choose to rejoice. Choose to dwell on God's grace. Choose to let it define you. Live from that identity. Revel in it. It supersedes any and every other thing. So number one, choose to rejoice, not to grumble. Number two, choose to agree, not to argue. Choose to agree, not to argue. See, he says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Remember, he's not writing this to an individual. He's writing it to the church. And he's just written about uh, their, their needing to be of like mind and needing to be unified. Learn to agree together on the gospel. Don't argue for your own preferences if it really doesn't matter to the gospel. Number three, choose to live blamelessly, not corruptly. This is working out your salvation, living in a way where I I don't do things to where people could 
put false blame and corruption on me, but I do it in a way that I live blamelessly because when I live in a corrupt way, it reflects on my creator. It reflects on Jesus and it makes him look corrupt. So, so I should live in a way that's blameless because Jesus is blameless and he's the one who works in me and enables me to do that. Live blamelessly, not corruptly. See, he says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, Paul used the phrase that God had used for the Israelites for the culture surrounding them, a twisted and corrupt, perverse generation. That doesn't really apply to our generation, does it? Not really that crooked or that twisted. Yeah, it totally applies in a huge way, nothing new under the sun. And he says, among whom then you shine as lights in the world, holding fast, here's the fourth thing, holding fast to the word of life. That, that holding fast in verse 16 can either mean one of two things. Your translation might also say holding out. So you're living as lights, shining in the world, holding fast to the gospel, holding fast to the word of life, but also holding it out, holding out the word of life. And I hold fast to that, to God's truth, to the gospel, to Jesus not to preferences or traditions or fill in the blank. Most churches, if they fall, if they fail, and they just go to a slow, horrible defeat and just kind of wither away, more often than not, it's because they haven't done these things. They haven't worked out their salvation. They haven't pursued unity. But they've, they've allowed division to come in. And instead of holding fast to the word of life, They've held fast to their own tradition. They've held fast to their own preferences. They've held fast to, like the birds on Finding Nemo, me, me, mine, mine, mine. So why do we do this? Why do we work out our salvation? Well, ultimately, here's what Paul says, verse 17 and 18 as we close. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering... I won't get into this, but basically the, the thing he's saying is even if my lifeblood, your translation might actually read even, if my lifeblood is poured out as an offering, if I give my life here in prison and I don't make it out, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, faith is a sacrifice, I'm glad, he says, and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. If you could see that in Greek, you'd see he actually says, I rejoice and I rejoice with you. And you should rejoice and you should rejoice with me. He chooses to rejoice. And, and the reason we do this is ultimately God does this, we saw in verse 13, for his pleasure, for God's glory. And Paul shows us then in verses 14 through 16, for the good of others to shine as lights in the world. So for others, good. And then ultimately, verses 17 and 18, for our joy. You want joy? Work out your salvation. Make that choice. Make that choice not to grumble, not to argue, not to complain, but to rejoice, to work it out. Let me pray. I will take our offering. We'll sing together and we'll call it a morning. Father, thank you for Jesus. And uh, thank you to our, for your grace to us through him. Father, thank you for um, the Apostle Paul and his example of choosing joy and choosing to rejoice while he's in prison, suffering, uh, waiting, as we know now, to die. 
And, and as he writes to, to the church, one of the churches he had planted and the people that he dearly loved, he calls them beloved right at the beginning of this passage. He writes to them, reminding them that though they've been saved by Jesus, they need now to live it out and to work it out. Not to grumble, not to harden their hearts like the Israelites did in the wilderness, but instead to have soft hearts, holding fast to the word of life, holding fast to the gospel. Father, that's what you call our church to as well. Help us to do that both as individuals and as a body, that that our church would shine as a light in a dark, crooked, twisted generation to a world that desperately needs to know the good news of Jesus. Father, I pray for those who are here today that uh, they're hearing this and maybe they have preconceived ideas about what it means to be a Christian, that in order to earn your, to, to gain your favor, they had to earn it through their works, that they had to, to do enough good things. They had to come to church enough. They had to give enough. They had to get it right. Holy Spirit, reveal to their heart this morning that they'll never get it right, that Jesus is the only one who did get it right. And trusting Jesus is their only way to be made right with you. It's not by works. It's a free gift. And by that gift, then we live rightly. Help us not to be hypocrites in that way, but to live out our salvation. Father, we love you. And I pray all this through Jesus, our Savior.